Good morning, good morning, church family. You glad to be here in the house of God at the gate of heaven? Come on. How many of you are excited to be in God's presence? Welcome, welcome to church today. So honored you're joining us for worship. My name is Libin Abraham, and I get the joy of being the campus pastor at our Missouri City location. What a joy to see what God's doing in and through our church. You'll notice today in your worship guide, the notes are actually empty, um, and the title is actually not the title that I'm going to preach. It's because we were supposed to have another guest speaker today speaking to our church. It was supposed to be Pastor Tim Homa, but he ended up pulling a muscle on his back just a couple of days ago, picking up a case of water, so he's unable to be here. So guess what? You're stuck with me for another week. But I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, if you have our Sugar Creek app, you can actually pull up all the notes on the app uh, under the worship section on the bottom there. There's a space called the Worship Guide, and all of the fill-in-the-blanks are there. I know some of you can't follow along without fill-in-the-blanks, so it's on the app, and it'll be on the screen as well. One of the things that makes an actor or an actress so great at what they do is their ability to not just know the part that they're playing, but to become the part that they're playing. An actress is extraordinary. An actor is super amazing. And they win Oscars because they have gone to extreme lengths to study the character to such a point that they have literally assumed the character, the person of that individual. So, for instance, Christian Bale, when he was uh, playing the role of an insomniac in The Machinist, he lost 122 pounds. And then right after that, put on 100 pounds of pure muscle to play Batman. One of the more tragic of these events is Heath Ledger, who played the Joker uh, in The Dark Knight. Uh, he wanted to be so crazy that before the filming began, he locked himself up in an apartment complex just to be crazy enough for this role that he was going to play. And during the week of the filming, he slept less than two hours per night because he wanted to be extra delusional during the filming. And way after the filming was done, he couldn't, he couldn't separate who he really was as Heath Ledger and who he was as Joker. And therefore, he overdosed on drugs because he had an identity confusion because he had so welded together with this character. On another note, on a more positive note, uh, Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, before playing Jesus in that role, he wanted to be so immersed with the scriptures, with the gospel, and be so familiar with how Jesus lived and walked and taught that he read it through multiple times. And especially during the filming of the crucifixion scene, he said, I've been thinking about that moment and what Jesus would have experienced on the cross, that actually when he got up on the cross to shoot this film, this scene, he began to feel excruciating pain. He felt alone and abandoned. In fact, he caught hypothermia, began to shake uncontrollably because he was living the role, the part out. Some of you, you've been married to your spouse for so long, and I've seen this in, in our couples in our church, that after being married for so long, guess what? You start acting like each other. You even start looking like each other. I don't know if that's even possible, but maybe it's in your mannerisms. You finish each other's sentences. You get jokes that nobody else gets, but only you do because you've been living with this person for a long time. Our daughter Avery, who's just a little bit over than three years old, I mean, she catches everything we say and what we do. She is the one now, if we for some reason forget to pray before we leave our home together as a family or before we go to bed, she says, Daddy, you didn't pray. Like, what's wrong? You did not pray today. <laughs> she caught on to our behavior. Because what we all agree is that knowing someone for a long time or being around a culture or an environment leads you to eventually becoming like them. 
or to be changed in such a way that your behavior begins to adopt. And it's different because of the environment that you are in. I want to propose to you today that knowing Jesus should lead you to the same kind of results. That walking with Christ, being around Jesus, being in this kind of a setting week after week should change who you are as a person. That knowing Jesus actually means becoming like him. That believing in Jesus actually leads us to such a transformation that it changes us from the inside out. And we are so welded to his word and welded to who he is as a person, his personality, his character, that we become like Christ in the world. I'm not saying that you become divine and perfect and sinless. I'm saying that knowing Jesus changes who you are and you become like him in your character, in your outlook. So the question of our Christian maturity is not how much more about God do I know, but rather how much more like Christ have I become through the journey of my life. Notice what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 onwards. This is how we know that we know him. Here it is. If we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. You ready? Here it is. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. This is how we know that we're in Christ, that we walk just as Jesus walked. When I read that for the first time, it was like a ton of bricks hitting my soul. To walk like Jesus walked? I mean, I'm a, doing a great job if I'm walking like Pastor Marco most days, our lead pastor or some spiritual hero of ours, right? But the standard is not some great spiritual leader. It's to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Knowing him is becoming like him. That is what John said in the two, two chapters later, in chapter 4 of 1 John. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this love is made complete with us that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. This is why you have confidence on the day of judgment. This is how you know that God's love has been poured deep into your heart, and it's achieved its purpose. What's the reason for our confidence? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus would have been at your workplace, so are you. As Jesus would have been in your marriage, faithful, loving, giving, sacrificial, so are you. As Jesus would have been in your community, in your neighborhood, in the world that we live in, so are we in this world. I can't say that on most days. But yet this is the call for those who follow Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Just one thing, guys. This is what matters. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy. That word there is suitable. As citizens of heaven who are living according to a new law and a new reign, live your life in a way that makes sense with the gospel of Jesus. I want to try and illustrate what I think these scripture writers are saying. This is a balance scale or a weighing scale. Some of you have no idea what this is, but maybe some of the more mature saints in the house do. 
a balance scale. The idea is that you put something on one end and you put a set of blocks that weigh a certain amount on the other end. And it is supposed to weigh the same. It's to be of equal weight. It's to be suitable with each other. It's to make sense with the other weight. I think what Paul and John are saying in these verses we have just read is if Jesus is on this side of the scale, if the gospel, if the scriptures, if what Christ has done for us, who he has been to us is on this side of the scale, how he lived, how he loved, how he walked is that on this side. And if on the other side is our life, our behavior, our actions, for those who know Christ, we should live suitable worthy of the gospel of Jesus. That our behavior, our way of life, our rhythm of life should make sense with the gospel of Christ. That who we are and how we walk and how we live in this world should be of at least similar weight to how Jesus lived and walked. Now I know we're not perfect. We're not sinless. We are not the son of God like Jesus was. And I'm not saying we're going to become so divine in this course of life. No, what I'm saying and what these scripture writers are saying is if the current of the river of Jesus is headed in that direction, our lives should not be going in that direction. That we should be following closely, intimately, intentionally with the life, the rhythm, the passion, the desires of Jesus that when put on a weighing scale that our lives make sense with the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. I want to give you just five things that I believe the scripture, at least five, there are plenty more, but at least five things that the word of God calls us explicitly to mimic, to become like Christ in. And the first one is this, knowing Christ means becoming like Christ in our love. And each of these statements have an ING at the end of it because it's not that we immediately overnight become these things. No, it's a lifelong journey of daily being sanctified. We call that here life change of progressively daily becoming more and more of these things. So first of all, knowing Jesus means that we are becoming more like him in our love. Jesus, just a few days before the crucifixion, looked at his disciples and gave them this one command, this new command. And we find this in John 13, verse 34. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. This is your brand. Not some crazy miracle, not some new knowledge or philosophy. What's the brand by which you are known to the world? If you love. If you love one another. The command to love was not a new command. I mean, all the way back in Leviticus 19, we're told to love our neighbors. And even on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus elevated the whole definition of love. And he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So what is it about this command that makes it new? That sets love in a whole new category. It's found in six words. Love one another just as I have loved you. Oh. That's pretty clear. That's different. Love each other. Love people just as Jesus has loved me. I mean, I can love people based on how worthy I think they are of love. Or how well they have loved me. I can love my neighbor, my spouse, my family. Based on how I feel like loving that day. 
But here the new command is that we don't love based on how they loved us or how we feel like loving, but we love just as Jesus has loved. And I know I cannot earn that love. I cannot deserve that love. I could never work up to that love. That's an irrational kind of love. That's a radical, selfless, sacrificial, serving kind of love. But Jesus is saying to his followers, this is how you're known in the world. Right before Jesus gave these words to his disciples, he performed a great visual of what he meant by these words. So he took his disciples to the upper room and there he washed their feet. John says that in this moment in chapter 13 verse 1, that before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He had just a little while left. So having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to this end. He wanted to show them the extent, the depth of his love. So all the disciples are seated at the table, leaning forward to get supper, to get dinner. Jesus takes off, of his, take, takes off his outer garment. He stoops down, picks up a basin of water and a towel, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now when we think of washing feet, we think about unlacing our nice leather Steve Maddens and taking off of our patterned socks and rinsing our already clean feet, even pedicured feet. But that's not... The image here, in first century, it was a walking culture. They didn't ride cars, they walked everywhere. And they didn't have shoes, at best they had sandals, probably even barefooted is how they walked. This is before underground sanitation, on dirt road. So you imagine all of the filth that's traveling on the road with you. And guess what, animals are occupying the street as well and there are no cleaning crews coming up to pick up after them. So when you walk miles and miles on these dirt roads, your feet are absolutely filthy. And this is supper time. It's evening. They've been walking all day long. This was a job reserved for the lowest class of slaves and servants in that day. But here's Jesus, the son of God, the one who made the world, stooping so low to wash the feet of his disciples. He gets to Judas. I would have totally skipped Judas. Totally. But we're told here that Jesus washed his feet too. That in fact, he was already thinking about betraying Jesus. The devil had entered his heart, but yet Jesus still washed his feet. He gets to Peter, knowing that Peter's going to deny him three times. Then to Thomas, the one who wouldn't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but yet unconditionally of their faith and their love for him and their commitment to him, he washed their John says, these are the words of Jesus after he did this in verse 14. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. We know that this moment of washing feet only pointed to the cross where Jesus would offer the ultimate sacrifice of lowering himself to the point of death on a cross. And there on the cross, he wasn't just washing the feet off of our feet, or the filth off of our feet. He was washing the sin off of our soul at the cost of his own life. That's the extent of his love for us. And it is with all of this in mind that Jesus is saying, this is how you need to love just as I have loved you. This is what serving looks like. This is what generosity looks like. This is what forgiveness looks like. To remove the outer garment of our pride and to serve people who may not deserve our love. 
I know you're thinking, I can love everybody except for those three people in my life. They're on the exception list. I mean, it's a short list, but they're on that list. Because they've wounded you, they've betrayed you, they've hurt you. But notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as Christ in God forgave you. Just as Christ in God forgave you. So here's the deal. If you feel like those who have done wrong against you, that their wrongdoing is greater than your wrongdoing against God, then you're off the hook. You don't need to forgive. But if you feel like what you've done against God and we have done against God, our rebellion, our wrongdoing is greater than what anybody could have ever done to us, but yet we're forgiven of that greater sin, then you're called to forgive and to release. Knowing Jesus means becoming like Christ in our love. So how is the weight of your love towards people? The love of Jesus is not conditional, but unconditional. It's not transactional. It's sacrificial. It's not on the basis of if-thens, but even ifs. Even if you betray me, I'm still going to love you. I'm going to pray for my enemies. Second of all, knowing Jesus means becoming like Christ in our purity. In our purity. John puts it like this in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. John is pointing us to the moment where the skies are peeled open and we see Jesus as he is. What an amazing moment that's going to be. To see him in all of his glory and splendor and all of his purity, it's going to be breathtaking. And John is saying, for those who have that hope of seeing Jesus, not by faith, but face to face, what do we do? We purify ourselves. How? Just as he is pure. In the 1970s, a survey asked American adults this question, do you believe that there's anything wrong with premarital sex, with sexual intimacy before marriage? And in 1970, 29% of American adults said there's nothing wrong with sexual intimacy before marriage, with immorality. But then you get to the 1980s and the same question was asked and 42% now said there's nothing wrong. Then you get to the year 2000, and that number jumped to 49% of American adults who said there's nothing wrong with this kind of immorality. 2012, it now was 58%. The last I heard in 2016, it was 74% of American adults said there's nothing wrong with sexual intimacy before marriage. We've been on a downward spiral of impurity and immorality. But that's not just in the world, it's in the church too. In a recent George Barna study, he found out that 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing internet pornography at least once a month. Churchgoers, Christ followers, church members. 64% of men and 15% of women once a month. 
What am I saying? Uh, we live in such a centralized culture where this is now the norm in our culture, unfortunately. And we must pursue purity with everything we've got. Purity of our minds, of our heart, of the words we say, of how we spend our money, of what we see, what we read, we intake into our body. Because John is saying, if you really believe that you're going to see Jesus in all of his purity, you need to purify yourself now. Not out of some obligation, but out of a great anticipation. Oh my goodness, I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to stand in front of him, and he's going to be clothed in all of his purity. And I don't want to carry in in that moment regrets and shames of how I lived my life. Ephesians 4, 24, Paul put it like this, put on the new self. And that word put on is every day, keep putting on. It's a progressive verb, put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Put on the new self. This is a revelation I want to give you that I didn't get until later than I wish I had gotten sooner. That we don't strive for purity in pursuit of a new identity. We actually strive for purity as a product of our new identity. We don't strive for purity in pursuit of becoming someone, of becoming accepted by God, in pursuit of a new identity. No, John says we are already children of God. That's who you already are, and that's the gift of grace. You are not what the culture says you are. You are not what your desires say you are. You are not what your flesh says you are. You are who God says you are, amen? That's who you are. You're children of God. So now, put on the new self. Become what you already are. And purify yourself. Not in pursuit of a new identity, but as a product because of who you already are in Jesus. So Paul says, I am now crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means these hands, they may be on my body, but they're not my hands, they're the hands of Jesus. These feet, they may be on my body, but these feet belong to Jesus. These eyes, these ears, this heart, this mind, all of it has been crucified to Christ. Even as a pastor, God is still purging me. And he is purifying all of us because we're in the flesh. And John is saying, as you look forward to that day with great hope and anticipation, become purified every day, more and more. Because the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you become aware of the attitudes deep inside, the inclinations of our flesh, and we don't then excuse it. No, we say, God, work on me. I'll confess, I'll repent. Change me from the inside out. Knowing Jesus means that we become like him in our purity. Third of all, knowing Jesus means that we are becoming like Christ in our purpose. We love just as Jesus loved. We purify ourselves as he is pure. And third of all, we become like him in our mission, in our purpose. Jesus said this in John 20 verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As a father has sent me, I also send you. As a father sent me into the world as the only begotten son for the redemption of mankind. As the father sent me, now I'm sending you the church. What was Jesus' purpose? Luke 19 verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. 
That's why he came. That's why he offered his life on the cross to seek and save the lost. So the father sent Jesus with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And now Jesus sends the church with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost through Jesus. So that means if there's lost people in the world, we still have a purpose. We still have a mission. This does not say that we are to stay and soak or stay and wait for the lost. That we seek and introduce people who are without Christ to him. We may have different jobs in here. We're all in different stages of life, different backgrounds, but we have one mission, one purpose, and that is to seek people who are without Christ and to invite them to Jesus, to invite them to church, to share the gospel, the good news of hope and joy found in Jesus. And if ever we have gotten away from that purpose, we are shying away from what it means to walk as Jesus walked. In this world, you've got a purpose. Look, the disciples of Jesus, the great heroes of the scripture, men like Elijah or Peter or Paul or women like Ruth and, and, and Priscilla and Esther, they could have only imagined or not even imagined, they could have only dreamed of having the resources and the opportunity, the global access that we've been given in such a time. But God, throughout the course of history, hand-selected you. He passed over all of those people, and he saw you, your name, your gifts, your opportunity, and he said, I'm choosing you for such a time as this, in this generation, at your workplace, to carry out my purposes in the world. You've got a purpose that's bigger than your life. If we live for our own kingdoms and our own little empires, our life is off balanced with the way of Jesus. You might say, well, there's no way I could live out a great purpose like that. Leads me to my fourth point. Becoming like Christ in our power. Knowing Jesus means that we are becoming like him in our power. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. I want you to pause there. Paul is drawing this comparison. He's saying, don't you remember that in the beginning of time when the world was dark and empty and without form, it had nothing. God said, let there be light. And guess what? Boom! Immediately the power of his word went throughout the universe and created light. The spans of the universe was created with the power of the word of Jesus. And it was a radical moment. It was so magical. And against that backdrop, Paul is saying, can I tell you what's even a greater display of God's power? To speak into the darkness of your soul and shine the light of the gospel into your darkened heart to make it come alive. That the glory of God seen in the face of Christ has now shown in our hearts. And that's powerful. Don't lose the wonder of your salvation. It's amazing. And then Paul says, now we have this treasure, this power in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. And for a century, they would hide jewels and treasures and precious, expensive things, not in metal safes, but in earthen vessels 
in breakable jars. They would hide it there because guess what? That's the least expected of places that the bad guys are going to go look for precious things. Thieves would have never imagined to go look at a clay pot and find something so precious. It was weak and breakable. And God is saying, I've given you the power of the gospel, the solution for the world today, this incredible light of Jesus Christ, and I've placed it into weak vessels, broken people, broken stories, so that the world will know that this extraordinary power to save doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from how good looking you are or smart you are or resourceful you are. It comes from the hand of God. So if you have felt weak, you've disqualified yourself for the purposes of God. If you have felt unable and incapable of carrying out God's purposes in your life, that's exactly what God's been looking for. Breakable jars of clay to put in and deposit his extraordinary power. This is how Romans 8, 11 reads this. Paul said, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Paul is saying, the spirit of the resurrection lives in you. You remember resurrection morning, right? On that Sunday morning when the women were headed to the tomb, Matthew says that there was a great violent earthquake. There was a lightning coming from the sky and an angel appeared. And at such power and greatness, the guards who were at the tomb fell over as if they were dead. It was a powerful, radical, majestic moment. And here, Paul is saying that same power and spirit lives inside of you, Christian. He lives inside of you. And that spirit is strong enough to break the chains of your sin and addiction. It is mighty enough to make you move forward from your past. It is strong enough to strengthen you in your weakness that when you feel empty on the inside, that that spirit fills you up. When you don't know what to say, that spirit gives you the words to say. When you are confused and looking for clarity, that that Holy Spirit speaks life into you. So you are not a helpless people. You have the spirit of the risen Jesus living in you. Let me ask you this question. If God's power, if his extraordinary power was removed from your day-to-day life, would it change your Monday through Friday? If his faith and if his power, if his strength was sucked out of your life, would anything about the rhythms of your life change? Because so often we get pretty used to doing stuff on our own strength. We get comfortable with our own abilities and strengths. And truly, we're not leaning in every single day to this extraordinary power that comes from God. Many times we draw the parameters of our day, of our life, based on what we can do and based on what we are able to produce. But today I want to challenge you to redraw those parameters and say, God, if you are at work in me every day, and if the spirit of the resurrection is inside of me, what could my life look like? What could tomorrow, what could my meeting look like if you entered the room with me? I made a goal this year to never leave home without the joy of the Lord. Because the day I do, I'm empty. 
I come home wearied and tired with nothing left to give, but the moment I'm on my knees saying, God, fill me today, I need you. I can't step into today with my own strength, my own power. God begins to work in and through me. And the same is for you. Knowing Christ means you know a greater power at work in your life than your own strength. Lastly, knowing Christ means becoming like Christ in our pain. This is a hard one. Becoming like Christ in our pain, in our suffering, in our disappointments, in our loneliness. What has stunted the growth of so many Christ followers is that at some point in their journey of faith, there was a price they were unwilling to pay for the cause of Christ. There was a convenience, a comfort, a personal dream or aspiration that they couldn't release and let go for the cause of Christ. There was a pain they were unwilling to endure. And though God called them to new levels, a deeper level of walking with him, a great purpose and a mission, man, I just don't want to go through that pain again. Let me tell you, even in our great nation, there will come a day where following Jesus will cost you a lot. It might cost you your job, your relationships, your influence, your resources. It might even cost you your life. But we've got to decide now, is there a price I'm unwilling to pay for the cause of Jesus? Even if I stand alone and lose everything, is there any price? Is there any pain I'm unwilling to bear? This is how Paul wrote it. This is what Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. You want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. We all want to know Christ. So what does it mean? Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We just talked about that. To know his power, the power of the risen Savior. But then there's a second part that I wish wasn't in there. And participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. To know Christ is to become like him in his death. Knowing is becoming. To become like Christ in his dying. To embrace the pain of obedience as Jesus did. As he hung on the cross, he wished there was another way, but there was not. So he offered his surrendered will in obedience to the Father for the salvation of humanity. To say, God, there is no price I'm unwilling to pay even at the cost of my own body. On the cross of Jesus, at the death of Christ, he is there praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He is inviting a lost man, a thief on his side in the midst of his agony. He's saying, come into eternity with me. Come into paradise with me. He is praying for his mother Mary and making sure that the details of the rest of her life are worked out. And for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and all of his shame because he thought of you and said, it's worth it. The pain is worth it. For the life that will be changed, the agony, the suffering for the cause of Christ is absolutely worth it. To know Christ is becoming like him in his death. Later on, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 10 and 11, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Whoa. On our backs we carry the suffering, the agony, the pain of Jesus on our body. 
Why? So that his life may be displayed in the world. 11, verse 11, for we who are living are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. Paul is saying that the only way that the fragrance of the gospel, the fragrance of Jesus' life is revealed through us is if we carry and mimic his qualities, his character as he was on the cross. We embrace pain. We embrace suffering no matter the cost. I'm going to give you a quick example this week. One of the things that I so love about our church is that throughout the summers we send people all over the world to share the good news of Jesus. All the way from Japan to Colombia to Honduras to Nepal to Houston, all over the city. And right now there is a unique team on the ground in Nepal, in the mountain ranges of the Himalayas. This is a picture of the group. That's, there are seven of them that are out there. This is a quick picture of at least six of them. We call them the extreme team. I'll tell you why in just a moment. These seven Sugar Creek members are going into a district of seven towns. Seven towns. Each of these towns are filled with 300 to 500 families. And can I tell you that in these seven towns, in these hundreds and thousands of families, none of them have heard the gospel. Completely unreached with the goodness of Jesus. No Bible, no, no church, no known believers, no evangelists. Completely untouched by the power of the gospel. And many of the women in these towns are sold and bought into human trafficking. Part of the reason why the gospel hasn't reached these towns is because it's so hard to get to. Each of these seven towns are separated by 4,000 plus feet of elevation. So to go from one town to the next, you've got to hike down 1,000 feet and then hike up 3,000 feet or more. It takes hours just to get there. No one's ever gone. In fact, part of the prerequisite, prerequisite for these guys and gal was that they had to run 6.2 miles without stopping at a pace of nine minutes per mile because it was going to be those kind of conditions that they endured. We got a report back from this team a few days ago, and they said yesterday we hiked eight hours to go from one town to the next. Eight hours. Not only did they hike eight hours, they hiked eight hours in pouring rain with 50 miles per hour wind on their back. And during the hike, they had to bushwhack through some areas to get through. They had to walk through leech-infested areas to get through. It was pouring. Everything they had was soaked. They were bleeding by the end of this. All of their belongings, their sleeping bags were all soaked. And then eight hours later, finally, they arrive at a town to preach the gospel to people who've never heard, completely exhausted from their journey. But then they began to preach. This is what Paul is saying. We carry on the backs of our body the dying of Jesus, the death of Christ, the sufferings, the pain of Jesus, so that through us life is brought. Let me tell you this, over the last four days, in the ranges of the Himalaya mountains in Nepal, in a place that the gospel has never taken to, has never been reached, 97 people have given their lives to Jesus Christ. A whole new set of group of people in heaven. 97 people, why? Because these men and women 
left their comfort zones because they had a purpose, they had a love burning deep inside of them. There was no pain, no cost that was too great. So these villagers are seeing you came from America to love us, to bring this gospel to us. We want to follow this Jesus. Just stand with me. Let me ask you this question, really, deeply in your heart. Does your life make sense with the gospel? If your life and the life of Jesus are placed on the opposite sides of a weighing scale, does it make any sense? We're called to walk as Jesus walked, as he was in the world that we would be in this world. How is the weight of your love for people? Are there restrictions, prejudice, racism, any bias that keeps you from loving people as Christ loved them? How is the weight of your purity? Are you pursuing every day to be cleansed in hopes of seeing Jesus soon? How is your purpose? Have you shot away from the purpose of God in the world? How is your power? Are you leaning in every day to the strength of God, relying on the Holy Spirit every moment? And how are you enduring the pains of life for the cause of Jesus? Imagine if all of us in this room and all of us in our church took one more degree closer to walking like Jesus, what fragrance of life would fill the earth? That people would see the message, the gospel, so clearly in our life. For some of you here today, today needs to be the day that you begin this journey, that you know Christ, that you experience this new love, this new purpose, that you give your heart to Christ today. Don't leave this campus without getting your eternity secured because of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Knowing is becoming. Becoming closer into the image of Jesus every day. So Father, in all of our weakness, in all of our flesh, we ask you to help us. Holy Spirit, will you draw us closer to the life of Jesus? May we be so wedded with the scriptures, with the word of God, with the narrative of God that it changes us, that we become what we read that we would be quick to obey and quick to see change in areas of our life that need to be purified. So today I'm asking, especially for those in this room who are without Christ, that today you work on their heart, you draw them to knowing Jesus and beginning a journey of becoming a whole new person under the power and grace of Jesus. For those of us in this room that are not a part of this church, that those folks would today begin a journey with this community, knowing that none of us have arrived, we're not perfect, but we're on our journey together. Help us, fill us with your spirit to live and walk as you did on the earth. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen.